and welcome to The Flow, a podcast created by Taboo Period Products, a social enterprise that sells organic cotton products with all profits and advocacy efforts dedicated to ending period poverty. My name's Ophelia and each week I'll be in your ears with one of our Taboo co-founders chatting about the topics that Taboo cares about most, health, well-being, gender equality and of course, periods. So let's get into The Flow. So today I'm joined by Izzy for part one of our endometriosis series. Endometriosis is a condition associated with menstruation which affects one in nine people assigned female at birth in Australia. If you don't know what endometriosis is, then you're about to find out. We're kicking off the series with an interview with Associate Professor Dr. Louise Hull. Louise is an obstetrician and gynecologist who specialises in endometriosis, a fertility specialist at Embrace Fertility here in Adelaide, and an Associate Professor in Reproductive Medicine. Louise is a wealth of knowledge and we are so excited to be chatting to her today about the pathology of endometriosis, its common symptoms, treatment options and the future of endometriosis. So Izzy, what season are you in? So today I believe I'm in spring. So it's my follicular phase. I've just recently had my my last period. Nice. Um so yeah, what does that mean for me? I guess I'm feeling creative. Yeah, feeling energetic. good. <laughs> yeah. Is your like are your energy energy levels going up? I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I can feel I can feel that. Yeah. The hormones are doing their thing. I'm in a deep autumn. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you look down as you said that. <laughs> um yeah, this has been a hardcore autumn. Um kind of like excited for my period to come so it can end yeah, yeah. clean up those leaves yeah but I'm excited to talk to Louise today I think that's going to pick me up yeah no me too yeah. she's going to be amazing this yeah. woman is a powerhouse oh it's so exciting yeah you guys are going to love it let's get mm. into it before we get into the rest of the podcast we want to make it clear that we are not doctors specialists or professionals if you're worried about anything we discuss in today's podcast please seek help from a qualified professional so Dr. Louise Hull, thank you so much for joining us today on The Flow. So you are a doctor, an associate professor, you have the top spe- specialist qualification in fertility, just a jack of all trades really. <laughs> um, can you tell us about what your career trajectory was from um, university to where you are now? Uh, yes, so I actually grew up in the South Island of New Zealand Um, and uh, I initially actually didn't get into medical school and so did a science degree, um, which at the time was terribly upsetting, but having said that, um, I ended up doing science at a time where we were learning so much about genetics and new technologies, and there was so much going on in biology at that time that it really gave me a very great understanding of biology, particularly reproductive biology, because IVF was just developing at that point too. Um, and uh, it, it put me in a really good place to be able to do medical research later on. Mm. After I did science, I did get into medical school then <laughs> and ended up really having a very strong interest in reproductive health and ONG. And I went on to subspecialise in ONG, but in those days you had to do a year overseas. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to initially go to Taunton in the UK mm. and work in the NHS. And then um, I ended up working in Cambridge and I had young children at the time. Mm. So I went back to science and did a PhD 
in endometriosis, which was a lot more flexible. It was an area of great interest to me. And at that time, um, it was company sponsored by Pfizer, who suddenly realised so many women had this condition Mm. and we didn't know anything about it. And they were looking for a a, um, clinically qualified person who could also work in the lab. So both those qualifications were essential to the job. And I got this uh, amazing PhD opportunity in a really... um, you know, a very academic environment where I could really meet people from all over the world who were specialists in endometriosis. Um, And I was sent to um, Tennessee to learn about different endometriosis models and really look very closely at the biology. And um, we were able to use gene array technology, which really was one of the first places in the world that we're using that. We were able to um, get to work with the Cambridge Mathematics Department, which was very high tech, um, and they were helping us analyse the arrays so we could measure everything, but we didn't know how to actually analyse the data we were getting, and they were really great at helping us do that. Mm. So we learned a huge amount about endometriosis at the time. It was good actually working at, um being sponsored by a pharma company because they were looking to look at therapeutic development with some of the data we were getting. Um, And it really was an amazing experience, actually, just even being in the historical places in the UK. Um, And we we lived in a little village. Um, So even though it was a very big city... Um, the environment we were in, we really met people in a village setting and, and really made a lot of friends over there at the time um, mm. before we came back to Australia. Right. And, and Adelaide was actually one of the best places to do reproductive medicine in Australia. So I was very, very lucky. I initially went out to Lyle McEwen for a year um, and went on to a subspecialty training program in Australia and got some very good training in reproductive medicine. Um, and was able to set up my endometriosis group at the University of Adelaide. And they've been very supportive to me over the years. Um, And that group has really... We've done lots of different studies, both in biological sciences, but also clinical trials. We do a lot of clinical trials for new drugs for endo, as well as um, we've looked at digital media. um, And now we're looking at diagnostics. So we've done a lot of work in diagnostics as well. So there's been quite a bit of research that have come out of Adelaide. Mm. I've had some amazing PhD students um, that have gone on to do some incredible work. Um, But we've also been able to collaborate across the country and uh, internationally too. Mm. It sounds like um, there's very much factors of time and place coming in that kind of led you to endometriosis. Is there anything else that really drew you towards study in that particular area? Um, I think uh, it was a really great combination of things that I was very, very interested in. So this, uh, we did a lot of work on genetics, we looked at microRNAs, we looked at um, hormones and pharmacology, and then we also looked at um, pelvic pain. I've done a little bit more work with that over the last few years, and um, then also fertility, um, which is where I do a lot of work, and adolescents, young young people. It's been really interesting. As my career's progressed, something sort of popped out of the woodwork a lot. I've met somebody or, you know, you just get these opportunity moments when if you're really interested in a field, 
something you meet someone or um you hear something and it really all gels and mm. we've been really lucky to be able to have a really interesting career doing lots of different things at the moment we're really looking at machine learning and um social media and digital platforms which is a whole new area for us as well which is fantastic mm. and um it's been really fun to be able to pick up the new technologies as they go along yeah. so it's been great Absolutely. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about endometriosis already, but some of our listeners might not actually know exactly what that means or what it looks like. Can you describe what endometriosis is? Uh, so endometriosis um, is where the lining of the womb, which usually sheds every month, and all the cells that get shed leave your body. In endometriosis, there are those cells up in the pelvic cavity, and um, when they and but they respond to hormones the same way the lining of the womb does, so they grow through the month. But then, when the hormones suddenly stop, you get them shedding, and that causes an inflammatory response. So all the immune cells come in to clear those cells, and that causes bloating. It causes inflammation. It causes pain. And then once that happens, those cells then regrow the way the lining of the womb does. Um, and you get that regrowth and new blood vessels and new nerves, which are a bit aberrant, and you get some fibrosis as well. And, and that kind of that um, process happens every month, triggering pain. And so women generally get period pain, but then it can go on to cause more pain symptoms. Um, but also an inflammatory environment is a little bit harder for eggs and sperm and embryos as well. So it makes it more slightly, it doesn't stop people conceiving, but it can delay conception. Mm. Um, so fertility is also a factor there. Yeah. Um, you've just touched on it now, but you know when I think of endometriosis, I think of those really common um, symptoms of it such as infertility or IBS or really horrible period pain um, in your experience what are the most common symptoms that you see with women who have endo? So um, every woman with endometriosis has very different symptoms and we actually did a study looking at 14 different symptoms and on average most women had eight mm -hmm. and only a very small number of women only had one <laughs> um, so period pain is probably the most common symptom and that's how really we identify it and other women um, without endo do get period pain and chronic pain mm -hmm. but what actually happens when you get period pain is that that triggers every month you get a trigger that can activate a nerve root in the back so a lot of women get back pain and that then can sensitise all the organs in the pelvis and so then you can get bladder pain or frequency, you can get um, cervical pain, you can also get bowel pain and um, IBS symptoms and gastric complaints. Mm. Um, but then also the pelvic floor muscles can spasm in response to that pain. And that's where you get stabbing pain mm. or pain down the fronts of the legs or shooting pain very sudden pain and that pain's actually very debilitating that's what women often find the most difficult one to manage because it's very sudden and it really stops them doing things mm -hmm. um, and that really responds more to pelvic floor stretching exercises so physio is quite important with that pain once you have a lot of pain like that though the brain gets overwhelmed with all these different sensations from um, the pelvis um, and that's where people find fatigue is the most is very common mm. 
and headaches, nausea, sometimes vomiting, feeling hot and cold, so very systemic things. Mm. And we sat in a big consensus group, international consensus group, talking about what needs to be reported, and we had a lot of women with endometriosis there, and they felt the two symptoms that really had to be reported were pain symptoms and fatigue. Mm. Was That was a very common symptom. Yeah. So those are probably the two most common symptoms. Mm. Well, we know that despite all of these uh, very debilitating symptoms, it can take up to um, eight years to be diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, Why do you think that women um, historically have been misdiagnosed? Um, I think that we have not not been able to have conversations about periods or pain very well in the past. And it was very, very embarrassing to be talking about periods um, and particularly um, we weren't very good at being able to talk about periods to men. Mm. It was something that we weren't supposed to talk about. Um, So often we'd find women would go to a male GP in the past, feel really uncomfortable about talking about their periods. The whole conversation was embarrassing for everybody and I think often people didn't know what to do or what to say. Mm. We've got much more mature about that and we have very good GPs now who... Um, are getting much better at understanding. But there's been some really good studies showing that female pain is less recognised amongst doctors, which we are changing, and I think that probably has changed as well. Um, uh, Quite often women may have had other women in their family who had potentially had endometriosis but didn't get it diagnosed. So it tends to be a little bit inherited, not completely inherited, but it tends to be more common running in families Um, and if your mum and your grandma had period pain it often was normalised it Mm. was considered normal and I've certainly had other um, um, situations um, where people have said well I had period pain so that's normal isn't it and Mm. actually it's really not (laughs) but they might have had endo that wasn't diagnosed Um, so because we've had to use surgery to diagnose endometriosis. If you haven't had surgery, you may have it, but you don't know about it. Mm. And so often that period pain was normalised. And people didn't understand pain very well and how it progressed. So the other symptoms were often ignored. Um, People didn't really understand how to treat endo very well. A lot of people felt it was, um, you know, they didn't have good answers. If you didn't get surgery, you couldn't do anything else. So it was frustrating for both women and their their doctors. Um, but I think we tra- we're tr- really trying to change that because we think there are a lot of different options. Um, and the other thing that's really helped us is that women with endometriosis have felt a lot more comfortable about talking about it mm. and sharing their stories and... There's a lot of anger in the endometriosis community that people have been dismissed and their symptoms dismissed, um, despite them having to take time off school and time off work and really being debilitated by their symptoms, um, and no one really picked up on it and recognised it. Um, And now we have the language, we have the ability to talk about periods in the the public. You know, we, we couldn't... Facebook and social, and you know, media, uh, online, the internet would actually stop 
uh, I can remember trying to put a paper in about periods and that was considered a, a word that couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't actually send emails on oh, really? <laughs> with my paper on it because you weren't allowed to say that. That yeah. is insane. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. It was sort of on a band, you know, it was kind of uh, when they were trying to control, you know, what was being put online, mm. it was one of the things that was, you know, a, a word that would be kind a of naughty not, word. Yeah, <laughs> not able to be seen. That's yeah. crazy. Um, so, um, yeah. And it, it just seems so crazy that despite this being a biological process that happens to half of our population every single month, that's huge. And yeah. it's so significant to the progression of our species <laughs> like we need it I yeah. can't believe yeah. that it was banned yeah. well and also even things like um sanitary po- products um when they you know they, they were not able to be advertised on tv till, mm. you know it was quite it was probably in the you know 90s early 2000s where you first started getting advertisements for sanitary products but that was that caused a big you know, society wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And, um, it, it, um, people found that quite embarrassing and difficult to talk about. Mm. Um, but now we've got more mature as a, a society. I like the word mature. In that yeah, sense. I think we, you know, we've recognised it as a biological process. Um, and reproduction's always had a lot of um, kind of taboo around how children are conceived and. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of um, a lot of different cultures have a lot of um, ideas about reproduction outside of the biology, um, and so those kind, it has been something that people don't feel they can talk about. But again, now with IVF and with our understanding about eggs and sperm and embryos and implantation mm. as a biological process, and us uh, and the fact that we've even been able to explore that in research because women's health and reproduction was a, a very late to be explored and to be able to be funded and mm. to be able to find out about. There were lots of um, barriers, ethical and religious barriers, to even finding out about reproduction. But now we understand the biology so much better, mm. um, you can understand it more. And mm. um, there have been some amazing programs like the Menstrual Schools Program where they have chosen to talk to both boys and girls about menstrual disorders, about endometriosis, about different symptoms and what you can do to help people with endometriosis or with menstrual pain um, and how to approach that and how to have a conversation that you Mm. might feel a bit uncomfortable with, Mm. um, which is so much better to be able to actually talk about it even if it's a little bit outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Especially with endo because it's something that can affect so many different aspects of your life. That one simple conversation can do so much good for someone experiencing it. Absolutely. And even just having some acknowledgement that the pain is a real pain. Mm. A lot of people are, you know, people feel uncomfortable, embarrassed, and they don't want to talk about it. So they sort of shut down that conversation. Mm. But just to be able to say, look, I understand that you are in pain today. You know, what can we do to help you? Mm. Um, And that makes a big difference for people. Mm. I must admit that I'm speaking about how quickly we've developed in this space in Australia does make me think about um, being... when, When Eloise and I went to Kenya in 2018... Uh, we were speaking to some students in rural Kenya about using pads. It was very, very simple stuff. We were just showing them what a pad looks like um, and how to put it in their undies and things like that because a lot of the the girls in that, those schools hadn't used one before. Um, but 
there was one particular girl who put her hand up and said that um she get she got such extreme period pains that um she would have to sit down on the side of the road while in in the middle of her walks uh, to and from school, which were three hours long each. Um, And when she was walking in winter um, back home, that meant she was sitting by the road while it was getting dark because she physically couldn't walk any further because of her period pains. And I immediately thought, well, you probably have endo because it's so common that young people in other countries aren't exempt from that but then what do you even do in that situation she had no access to panadol even let alone the contraceptive pill not even a wheat bag so like bringing that conversation to different to different contexts and cultures um, and countries is is also a, a huge task too there's so much like there's so much to do absolutely and um, I think that's where uh, we're finding digital platforms really, mm. really work. Um, essentially, if you can go on the web, a lot of people, a lot of people in a lot of countries have phones. And one of the things that we're doing across across Australia, it's federally funded, but it is being developed by uh, researchers at the University of Adelaide, is putting a place that people can go to if you might have symptoms to find out where on the web you can go to get information and um, we have got people um, like Melissa Parker out of Canberra who's developed something called the Pippa tool and that is just five simple questions you know if you answer these questions and you get a certain score it might be worth going to a doctor and talking about it and they provide information of what sort of questions you should be asking your doctor and it just means that for someone who may be in a small community, they might be living um, in a rural community or a remote community where there's not a whole lot of things about endometriosis, you can get accurate information and get find, you know, how do you get to the support groups? How do you get to the information you need about a particular symptom? How do you get to information that's relevant, relevant to you at your age? If your wife has it, how do you find out information that can help your wife or your or your partner, um, or if someone at work, one of your employees has it? You know, what do you do? How do you do that? If you're a doctor and you were trained 20 years ago and we didn't know as much, how do you update? And and we're hoping to have a a, a platform that you can contact all the different community support groups. You can find out about the research. You can find out what's happening in Australia. Um, that would get you to the right place um, and um, hopefully that will help people in Australia but obviously it's once you go online it's accessible to anyone in the world and mm. that's what we're hoping mm. to develop. Yeah, oh, just before we mentioned the contraceptive pill there's no doubt that for many women who have endo that the pill is a lifesaver and it's something that can really help the pain that they experience each month or at least limit how much they're experiencing but there is a bit of contention about whether the contraceptive pill is overprescribed sometimes or just used to mask symptoms that women are experiencing. In your opinion, do you find that sometimes it is overprescribed when further investigation can be made or yeah, what, what do you think? Um, it's it's quite tricky because about 38% of women with endo will have period pain from their first period when they're quite young. Um, and 
the only really clear way of diagnosing at the moment is to actually do some surgery. And it can be a little bit harder to see the lesions when you're young. So you may, some women I'm sure have had surgeries when they're young, the lesions haven't been that easy to see and they may not even get the diagnosis there till they're a bit older Mm. and have surgery. And surgery is very difficult to access. It either costs a lot of money in private or you're on a long waiting list in public. Mm. Um, So one of the options is to try and reduce the triggers of pain. So with endometriosis, so a lot of people have pelvic pain and it's not all created from endo. So any pain in the pelvis will activate the nerve in the back and cause all those sensitisation symptoms Mm. and sometimes it's endo. And probably the majority of the time in young women it would be endo. So one of the the treatments for endo is actually to reduce the trigger And the way we can reduce the trigger is to reduce the number of periods people have. Because if periods are really painful and we can halve them by only having half as many, you've got half as many pain triggers. So one of the things we can do is use the pill. The pill makes the lining of the womb not so thick. So one of the symptoms of endo is heavy periods and often the pill will make that lighter. Um, But also you can actually not take the sugar pills and run the packets together quite safely. Mm. And if you can run two packets together, instead of 12 periods a month, you get... um, Sorry, 12 periods a year, Mm. you get six. So that halves your pain triggers. If you can run three together, that, that gives you a period four times a year. And that means you can actually have your periods in the school holidays, Mm. so you don't miss school. Um, The problem with running the pill packets together is some people can't do it because they get spotting and bleeding and irregular periods because the lining doesn't stay stable but for a lot of people that can really help Um, and even by reducing the thickness of the lining of the womb with the pill it just means the periods aren't as bad and often not as painful Mm -hmm. so it is a treatment of endo and I think it's quite a reasonable thing to trial um, but it should, shouldn't should mean that people are saying you don't have endo. <laughs> mm. I think that's the thing. If people are saying, no, use the pill, and then we don't think you've got endo, or we, you may or may, you know. I think the thing is you have to say, well, you could have endo. Mm. This is one of the treatments. It's probably worth trying before you have a surgery because surgery is going to trigger pain too, and it might be a long time before you can get that. Mm. And in the meantime, we can reduce your pain triggers, see if it works. It might be sufficient that that's all you need, but to not say, well, that means you haven't got endo, that's not true. You could still have it. We just haven't made the diagnosis. So you still need to know about chronic pain, how to manage all those other symptoms, but the pill's one step that might help. Um, And it's probably just so much more accessible than surgery. So we, we've heard this statistic that it takes about between six and a half and to eight years to get a diagnosis for endo. Can you walk us through what the current process is for from your first appointment all, all the way up until diagnosis? Uh, I certainly can, and I'd like to think that that's changing a little bit now. Mm. Um, so 
what often happens is that someone will present when they're quite young. Mm. And as I said before, about 38% of people with endo will have had pain from their first period. And it's more than 60% um, are under 20. So uh, when I went through medical school, we were told that women had to be 35 by the time, you know, that was the, the most common age to get endo symptoms. Oh, okay. But that was actually the, the age we were doing the laparoscopies. Oh. And unfortunately, um, endo, um, the gold standard for diagnosis requires surgery. Mm. Um, and um, different surgeons have different experience in making that diagnosis. Um, so a lot of women turn, uh, go and see their GP, explain about their pain, and they will get um, some treatment or um, some reassurance by their GP. Um, and often um, one of the first treatments is to think about can we change periods. Mm-hmm. And the pill makes the lining of the womb not quite so thick, so often we can reduce heavy periods, which are a symptom of endo. And if we run the pill packets together, we can reduce the number of periods people have in a year. And it's quite safe to do that. And it just means that it, instead, if you can run a pill pa- two pill packets together, people will have six periods a year, not 12. And that's halving the number of pain triggers for them in a year. So sorry, just to clarify what running them together means, that yep. means you don't take the sugar pills, which means that you continue to suppress your period from coming exactly so if you don't take the sugar pills the sugar pills will drop your hormones and make the lining shed if you just miss those sugar pills and take the two packets together um, it means that you potentially won't get a period for two two months Mm -hmm. and that halves the number if you can run the packets together for three months that's four periods a year and it also means that you can have your period in the school holidays which can make a big difference for people. I think just that as a fact is it speaks to how severe it can be. If people are strategically making sure their periods only come in school holidays, it really shows that it makes a huge difference. It absolutely does. And for some women, that's really helpful. We have other ways of suppressing periods. So a very small number of women can actually run pull packets together continuously and not have any periods but the risks when you run packets together are that you get spotting and sometimes people find they just can't do that. We do have other medications so we have things like the Implanon or the Marina and again for some people um, that can actually stop periods Um, and we uh, I work in adolescent gynaecology and we use um Um, marinas and implanons for young women with terrible period pain or heavy periods Um, and marinas make your period very light um, and some women will have no periods and it can be really really useful Um, we do have to place them while people are asleep when they're younger um, but a lot of younger people find that they can use the marina and just get back to living a normal life that had been totally disrupted by pain and menstrual problems. Um, some women who have sensitised a sensitised pelvis find they can't use something like the marina because it causes pain. So it doesn't work for everybody, but those treatments can be quite useful. Um, in terms of diagnosis, however... Um, when you're younger, if the lesions aren't as clear to see, you can end up having surgery and people might not see them. Mm. 
And so you end up without a diagnosis, even though the lesions are there, but they're small and difficult to see. So it's really tricky. Um, And we are trying to look at different ways of diagnosing endo so that you don't have to go through a surgical procedure, which obviously triggers pain as well, but also is expensive. And it really is very difficult to access surgery. Um, So by surgery, um, you're referring to the laparoscopy? Absolutely. So and can you walk that through? What does that look like? Um, so a laparoscopy is where we literally have a look at the pelvic cavity, and that's usually where endometriosis lesions are. Um, and we, um, you go sound asleep, we put a little telescope through your belly button, and we usually have a very tiny little port that we have um, an instrument that we can lift up the ovaries and things to look behind them. Um, and we put some gas in your tummy so we can see, and we just look at the front of the bladder, we look behind the womb, we look behind the ovaries, we check the fallopian tubes, and we just look everywhere we can to see if there's endometriosis there. Mm. And usually now, if we found it, and certainly if it was simple, we would try and remove those lesions at the time so that people don't have to have two surgeries. Mm. Um, If it's really complicated, if there's a lot of it, then sometimes we have to do a separate procedure, particularly if it's near the bowel or something like that, where we might need bowel surgeons as well, mm-hmm. or um, we might have to prepare the bowel. Yeah. Um, it seems like we all know someone who is, has experienced endo or is, is going through the process of um, getting a diagnosis. Why do you think it's becoming um, so common in women to experience endo or... On the other hand, do you think that we're just getting better at recognising it for what it is? You know, do you think that women have actually been experiencing it for years? We just didn't know about it. Um, I do. I think women have been experiencing it for years um, and we're getting better at recognising what it is. Mm. Um, So I think that um, there are other ways of diagnosing endo um, that we didn't really have before. And really, over the last sort of seven years, we've developed much better scans. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we can do transvaginal scans, which traditionally just looked at the womb and the ovaries, but now they're doing them so that they move the organs against each other, mm-hmm. um, and they can sometimes pick up that endo stuck organs together. Mm. They um, can look at along all the ligaments that hold the womb and sometimes they're thickened and they can see a little bit of nodule of endo. Mm. They look all along the bowel. And those scans are much better than the scans we used to have. They're quite specialised, so only a small number of people can do them. Mm. And we have two or three or four places in Adelaide where people will get a good endometriosis scan, but you have to actually ask for an endometriosis scan. And if you send someone to... Um, a a group where they mainly look at knees or shoulders or something else, Mm. they may not be as experienced at gynae scanning. Um, And we are are looking to work with some um, guys who do artificial intelligence to try and look at self-teaching sonographers how to do good endometriosis scans as well. Um, And... uh, MRIs can be quite helpful too, um, but they're very expensive to get. Mm. So especially younger people really can't have a transvaginal scan, but that's where an MRI may give us some information. Mm. Um, At the end of the day, surgery is still the thing that will tell you, 
And when you get a, when you get a scan that's positive, we can be eighty, we can be ninety eight percent sure that someone has endo. Mm. If we have a negative scan, we can only be sixty percent sure that they don't have endo. Right. So still forty percent of the time, if we go to surgery, we would find endometriosis. Mm. And at the moment, we've we've just got a new project where we're using AI to put scans and MRIs together to try and be a bit better mm. <laughs> at at you know being able to say you know if your scan is negative, it's more certain you don't have endo. At the moment, we really can't be sure. Mm. Right. So, does that um, when you kind of put those scans together, the transvaginal um, ultrasound and also the MRI, is the AI looking for just signs consistent with endo? Um, yes. So AI is really interesting because we have. So when we teach scanning and teach MRI for scans, there are seven signs you look for, and for MRIs, there are eight. Um, and AI can be taught those signs really well, um, and we've already got some preliminary data on that. Um, the thing that AI can do is if it gets enough data, if it gets lots and lots and lots of scans, and we're hoping to ask women who've had scans to let us have them, um, they can actually see things in the data that says, well, actually most women had this sign that we don't even know yet if that makes any sense. So mm. they will look at digital the things in the data mm. that we don't necessarily um, have explicitly as a sign for endo. Mm. And they will be able to say, look, when we had 80 women who had this collection of symptoms and this other sign, um, you know, all of them had endo. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. they so they can look at patterns in a way with lots and lots of data sets to pick up much more subtle signs mm. and also subtle collections of signs to try and help us. The other thing it can do is we can add uh, clinical data mm-hmm. and we can also look at blood tests and other, um, other uh, markers that none of the blood tests or other markers are very specific or sensitive, but it might be that when we have a very good um, imaging idea and then add other markers as well, which is much easier to do with AI because the data sets are huge, um, we might be able to add those in and find that we get better better diagnostics. So um, it's good to have diagnostics. I don't think it's going to replace surgery. Mm -hmm. What it means is that when you have your surgery, people are going to have a good idea that you've got endo. Mm -hmm. So they're going to look harder for it. Mm -hmm. They're going to know where it is, so they're going to be prepared for it better. Mm -hmm. And also we're going to be able to actually find out um, a lot more about treatment pathways because at the moment... We don't know if medical treatment is as good as surgical treatment because you have to have surgery before you can even enter a trial. We don't know if it's better to do IVF or have surgery if you've got endo Mm. because to enter a trial to test that, you have to have surgery. Mm. Um, Otherwise, no one knows if you've got it. Mm. So there's a lot of things we don't understand yet, partly because we can't diagnose it without a treatment. Mm, that's so, <laughs> so interesting. So your a lot of your research focuses on this um, laying, uh, um, combining imaging techniques and using AI. What point um, is that research at at the moment? Are you in 
trial phases or clinical trial yeah. phases? Um, so we have um, we've got we've we've just recently got a grant actually just this week, which has oh, been really great because we didn't have any funding for a long time. But we've spent about two years working with sonographers and um, radiologists who do MRIs for endo, um, and they're experts in the field. So um, George Condis up in Sydney is an Australian who's really developed endometriosis scanning, and Sophie Pearson in Melbourne. Uh, we have Jane Wilcock in um, Adelaide and Katrina Panuccio is a sonography specialist um, and they're all working with us um, to help us develop the AI around that. Um, in Adelaide we have the AMIL which is the Australian Institute of Machine Learning and uh, a professor there called Gustavo Carniero uh, was very interested in the endometriosis project and he's helping us um, and we've put that collaboration together uh, with another group um, who, under the National Action Plan that Greg Hunt proposed, um, they're trying to put a virtual cohort together so that women with endometriosis can register and we can look at symptoms and what their surgical outcomes were longitudinally to try and work out what the best pathways were. And we've said we would help them with um, images, mm. that people can upload their images um, and, and we can um, hopefully use some of that data for our project, but also help them with the treatment pathway optimization that they're hoping to do. That registry has is only just starting. Um, it's probably going to become a, no, a lot more... They've just got the platform and organising it. Um, but we're hoping that we can really help people mm-hmm. by just... We, it's just really hard because you need lots and lots of data to see which treatments were better. Mm. And we're hoping to find out that if people did have a marina when they were younger, did it actually mean their outcomes were better further down the track or not? Mm. And that that means that someone, you know, coming through, we can actually say, look, we know this will help you. Mm. Or people who did trial the pill, did that actually really help them or not? Mm. And then we we just get much better at really treating better. Mm. And But the... Um, it's everybody's so different and have such different symptoms that that's a better way of figuring it out mm. than trying to randomise people because you can't really randomise people when they need treatment for pain. Yeah, you know what I mean. You can't just yeah. say, "Well, you're going to get the placebo." Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. So. Isn't it crazy how important data is? Like, yeah. I remember being at school and underestimating how powerful data is, and not not appreciating people it, like in that field and experts in that field. Yeah. As I can much imagine as I it'd be now. like empowering for the women who are going to submit their data to this registry, the knowing that. Their experience is going to go is going to go on and help other women who, like in the future, who are going to be diagnosed with it and yeah. helping improve the process of diagnosis and treatment. And um, yeah. and I, I think that's what what's been actually really amazing is we've we've worked with all the endometriosis groups and we've interviewed lots and lots of people mm. um, to look at uh, putting a, a website up where where all this information about all the different projects can go mm. so that they can find out both about symptoms and about the PIPA tool and about the menstrual schools program and just mm. what's happening in Australia. Where it's not a support group, it's more what's happening. Mm. Um, and we've engaged all the endometriosis groups, but um, it's been really, really helpful 
to have those people engaged in the research as well because mm. they start telling us what's really relevant to people. And, you know, you can have someone decide on a study design that no one will ever enrol for because it just won't work with endometriosis. Mm. And um, that's really critical. And one of the things that we found is both there's a lot of anger mm-hmm. that they didn't get the treatments that they could have once they'd learnt about endo and how to manage it. But the second thing is there's an absolute desire to make this different for the next people that come along with endo. You know, mm. that, you know, if this, they sort of, there's a real desire amongst people within the endo community to really help young women who are going to come through in the future mm. not to have to have the pathway that they had, yeah. um, that often it, it wasn't treated, it wasn't diagnosed, they were dismissed, they lost a lot of education, um, they couldn't get a good job, you know, things like mm. that that could have been so different if their periods were better managed when they f- first started getting symptoms. Um, and we find whenever we talk about endo, we have so many people who are just so generous in terms of saying, please, can, I, can we use this to help someone else? Um, yeah. And we, for, especially for the MRIs, we actually wrote to people that had had an MRI and so many people responded and said, yes, we have to de-identify all their data and things like that, but they were very willing to let us try and get better outcomes for people in the future. So it's That's a very, so cool. very generous community. And what um, you were saying just before just really made me realise how much uh, something like endometriosis speaks to uh, su- such broad issues around gender equality, even like the gender pay gap that you mentioned, uh, people with a uterus who, who bleed and have endometriosis will have an effect on their schooling, their ability to be employed. Uh, and then there's just this domino effect where this whole population of people who have periods is at this disadvantage just because of a pathology um, which, yeah, it speaks to such broader issues than just the health issue itself. Absolutely. And it's also um, just your mental health. If you have something going on and everybody's ignoring it, it's not good for your mental health. Mm. But also, if you can't get to school, you can't, you can't, you're, you're socially isolated as well. You can't go to that party on Friday night and you may get your period mm. and can't go. And therefore, you can't talk about it on Monday. Yeah, and yeah. you're out of the, you know, you you end up being quite isolated. Whereas if you were feeling better, you know, and and you'd had good treatment, and you you didn't miss out on all that, it just means that you continue to be engaged, and you're able to, you know, what what we ideally want. I don't know that we can completely cure endo, but what we want it to be is just such a tiny part of your life, mm. and then all the other fun stuff, you know. And challenging stuff and all the other things that you should be doing in your life are the things you've your mind's working on. Mm. Whereas if endo pain is a big problem, it's the pain that takes over your life and you feel like all those other things become tiny. Mm. And it's the you know, the idea is to get the balance changed. Mm. Because endo affects relationships as mm. well. Mm. It affect people get pain with intercourse. But also if you're having to be in bed a day a, a month, you know, that if you can't do the dishes, <laughs> you know. Mm, yeah, Sometimes you can't look things, after your little yeah. one. Yeah. You know, it's it's tricky. And, it is a simple thing, isn't it? It impacts on relationships. It impacts on work. Mm. Um, you know, if you're to, having to take time off. 
Um, and again, that's where if your partner understands and your employer understands, you know, people can help you. Mm. Um, and if they have an understanding, and and part of that is you need to have a platform to be able to tell your story mm. and feel comfortable telling your story yeah. and and being permitted to tell your story. And that's where you know that taboo about menstruation is a problem. Mm. <laughs> So Louise, for our last question today, we'd love to know what your words of wisdom would be um, to someone at the beginning of their endo journey. Um, I think my words of wisdom uh, would be uh, get educated. I, I think, you know, talk to people about it. Go online. There's lots of really good online resources now. Find out about it. Read about as much as you can talk to people who have endo, contact the community groups. Um, there's lots of things that you can find out about endometriosis and there's also a lot of things you can find out about how to look after it both yourself, but how to talk to a doctor about it, how to talk to your family about it. Um, you know, I think just finding out everything you can so that you can actually, when you go and see people and want to get treatment or advice or support, you can say... I think I need physio, I've got this. And you may know more than the person you're seeing in the room because you've educated yourself. And it just means that you can find out about what you need, when you need it, and communicate it effectively. Mm. And I think that would be my my first, you know, you should be directing it. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to have that empowerment will help you get the things you need to make it a smaller part of your life. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for today. This has been such a beautiful conversation and I hope to the people listening that this has provided some guidance on what they're experiencing and hopefully that they don't feel so isolated in their journey, that there is support out there. So thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. I, I think you're going to a surgery after this. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> implanting an embryo. Yeah. That, that's a bit exciting. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank that's you. right. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for all the work you do because it's really helping people, um, you know, just find out where, what, what to do and how to think about mm. things that may, are, are difficult sometimes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of The Flow by Taboo Period Products. All of Dr. Louise's details will be linked below, including details about Embrace Fertility. Please leave a review of our podcast, give us a rating, hopefully five stars, and share it with your friends, especially if they have endo or don't know what endo is or don't have endo and you think that they should know. Follow us at Taboo Period Products on Instagram and we will be posting stories and question boxes on there um, on the topics we discussed today. So head over there and join the conversation. We will be back in your ears next week for the second part of our endo series. But in the meantime, enjoy your flow. Enjoy your flow.